we're going to start a series entitled Conversations with Jesus. And we're going to jump into this series, and I'm going to uh, introduce it this morning. And we're going to carry right through uh, December, before, right before our Christmas series. And then we're going to pick it back up next year. Because Jesus conversed with people. He was very provocative. He engaged people conversationally, relationally, and provoked change through these conversations. What did Jesus talk about? Well, Jesus talked about a lot of things, but we've boiled it down into four, we believe, to be kind of core values that Jesus was trying to communicate through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What we have recorded is the story of Jesus and the conversations of Jesus with other people. And we found these four values that Jesus emphasized. And they happen to be four values that we hold as a church. Love God, enjoy people, play your part, and share the story. I mean, isn't that true? That Jesus spoke a lot about how to love God and love others? I mean, that was primary on his heart. But he also talked a lot about how to really enjoy people. I mean, how to con- Jesus enjoyed people. People were not a bother to Jesus. People didn't get into Jesus' way. I mean, he made time for them. People interrupted him, pulled on him, stopped him, asked him questions. People from all different walks of life, socioeconomic backgrounds. He enjoyed people. Well, we enjoy people. He also challenged people to play a part. I mean, you think of the parable of the, the, the sower and the seed. We play a role in the kingdom of God. He talked a lot about the fact that you have talents and you are to invest your talents. Jesus also talked about how we share the story. Jesus said, I come preaching the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he sent his disciples out to share the story of the kingdom of God. And so if you really want to dissect the river church, you're going to find these four values in our church. So we're going to look at these four values through the lens of Jesus and his conversations. And this morning we're going to look at how Jesus taught about loving God. And we're going to look at that for eight weeks. Because isn't it important to love God? I mean, how do you love God? Well, we're going to look at eight different conversations that Jesus has that sheds light on what does it look like to love God. And so this morning we're going to take a look at the very first one, which is what I call the great commandment. Everybody calls it the great commandment. I actually, in my notes, wrote great commitment. And I think that was probably a pretty good idea because you could call it the great commitment. The great commitment is the great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and to love people as you love yourself. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. I mean, it just boils right down to that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Here it is in the message translation. I like the message translation. I like the passion. I like the new American standard. I like like the NIV. Um, I I like a lot of translations. But this one in particular this week caught my eye. And I'll I'll show you, I'll tell you why. When the Pharisees heard how he had bested the Sadducees, I like that. He bested the Sadducees. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had been in this argumentative relationship with Jesus from the beginning. I mean, talk about being insecure in your belief about God. That you will have to attack 
Jesus who says, I come bringing the words of God to, to, to shed light on what does it look like to be in relationship with God. These people who believe that they were in relationship with God put themselves in a opposition with, with Jesus. And so there's constant dialogue and discussion going on. And, and the Sadducees had just entered in one of those arguments and Jesus gave them an amazing parable and told the parable in Matthew chapter 22 about the fact that the kingdom of God is a lot like a, a table spread. We've been talking about that, haven't we? In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples meet Matthew and his friends at the table and they have this conversation, that's, that's what Jesus is talking The kingdom of God is a, a big conversation with other people about the kingdom of God over great food. Because food nurtures, food soothes, food brings people together. Food encourage, it, it encourages people to get close and intimate and enjoy one another. The, 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 bound, the, the boundaries and the, the walls come down. And Jesus, we've been talking about this. The church is a lot like a table. It's more than a row of chairs. I mean, the church needs to look a lot more like it. That's why we have granite groups, by the way. It's a table set, food and great drink and, and great conversation. That's what we're trying to do. That's what the church is all about. And Jesus says that, and everybody's invited in Matthew 22, and guess what happens? People decide they don't want to go. Could you imagine not wanting to go to a feast? Like, I got better things to do with my life. And, and not only did they not want to go, the messenger that brings the good news about the feast, they kill him. Now, that's sick, right? That's just downward weird. Why would you kill the guy that brings the good news that there's a great party and you've been invited? Oh, we're going to kill you. That's insulting to us. I mean, you can see why they were angry with Jesus. And Jesus tells this great story, and it says that they were bested. I mean, they were busted. They were schooled by Jesus. He was good at it. He really got in their minds and in their hearts and really started twisting things. And now the, the Pharisees come. The Sadducees were the priestly sect of Judaism that ran the temple and the high priest and, and all the, the performances of the religion of the day. The Pharisees, on the hand, other hand, were the law keepers, the lawyers and the scribes. They were the individuals that kept the law and the interpretation of the law. Here's what it looks like to be a good Jew. You follow these laws, 613 of them. Oh, by the way, we've got a lot of oral traditions as well, and you need to follow all of those as well. In fact, there were so many of them. There were 39 ways, actually, to keep the Sabbath. 39 ways to keep the Sabbath. So you have to go through all this list. I was looking at them the other day, and paddling in the ocean was not on that list, which I was really happy about. So apparently you can paddle on the Sabbath, but there's other things you can't do. And there's like 11 ways to make bread for the Sabbath. And you got to follow this ritual, and it just became rule after rule after rule after rule, law after law after law. And they believed being a good Jew was to do all of that. And so they go to Jesus, they gather together, it says, what, and, I, and I'm reading, I've got, it's in your notes, by the way, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, and it says that uh, they come together, and they ask him this question, and, 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 and then it says, 
they pose the question, which command in God's law is the most important? And Jesus says, well, here it is. See, they were thinking, we got him. There are so many laws. You pick one and you miss the rest of them, you're out. You've messed up. You're not a very good teacher. You're not a rabbi. You're not following our traditions and our laws. We're going to get you because you can't answer the question and be right. But Jesus just jumps right in. What does he say? Well, here it is. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your, in the message, it says passion, prayer, and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list. There's a second, and it's alongside it, love others as well as you love yourself. And these two commandments are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hang on them. And there was silence. A little more discussion goes on, and there were no more questions. I like the play on words here in the original language. There's lots of things going on, but, but thamao is to silence, and epirotao is to question. A lot of epirotao going on and a lot of fomao going on. There's silencing and there's questions. They thought that they were going to silence Jesus with their great questions. Jesus raises good questions and silences them. Totally ironic. Turns it all around. And by the way, the Pharisees should have known the answer to this question. I mean, think of it. It's the Shema from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Shema Israel, the Lord God, Yahweh, is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This came right out of the Old Testament. They already knew. Twice a day, they would, they would actually recite this with their family. Twice a day, what do you recite? Twice a day, what do you recite in your home? Every day, Shema Israel, Yahweh, the Lord God is one. We will love him with all our hearts and with our soul and with all of our mind every single day. And what Dr. Mike Wilkins points out is that not only did they know that it was supposed to be orally, verbally communicated or spoken or sung or prayed, but it was also an indication of their heart's willingness to obey all that God said. Because you are one God, you are the one God, we will love you by living according to the, your laws. I mean, that's what, that's what Wilkins points out. They, 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 it included the duty of obedience to all the laws. Not just some emotional attachment, but giving oneself to him with the entire person. That's what it means to love God, to give yourself with the entire person. And we don't follow the commandments in order to get the love of God. We love God, and as a result, we really follow after him. And that was the intention. If you fall in love with God, you're going to want to know what God says and live the kind of life God has for you, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? And so they understood that. And he also points out, you can't really love other people if you don't love God. That's why Jesus adds to the Deuteronomy 6, 4 Shema, which they should have known, to love God with all your heart and your, all your, your soul and all your mind, but also Leviticus 19, 
love your neighbor as yourself. It's right in the Old Testament. And he puts those two together and says, one doesn't live without the other. And you really can't love people unless you really love God. So let's really talk about what does it mean to love God. I mean, I, the, the, the German, I looked at the Greek translation, and I looked at the New American heart, soul, and mind. And the German really didn't help me here. Herz is heart, and, and Sela or Sela, I don't know which way to pronounce that, is uh, the soul, the being. And Gedanken, Gedanken is the, the mind, the intelligence. But when I looked at the next statement about loving your neighbor, this was really interesting, both in the Greek and in the German. The idea of neighbor, it's, it's Nächsten in German. And it literally means this. It means love for one's fellow man. Isn't that interesting? You don't have a neighbor. You have someone living next to you you're supposed to love. Oh, my neighbor. No, you don't have a neighbor. You have someone next to you who you're supposed to love. That's, that's the intention of the word, both in Greek and in the German. We lose sight of that when, we're tr- when it's translated in English, and we become neighbors with people that we don't even know and may not even like. And yet what Jesus is saying, if you truly love God, you'll understand the root of the word neighbor, which is to love someone, your fellow man, who actually lives right next to you. The person right in front of you is your neighbor. So how do you do that? Well, you learn to love God. So how do you love God? Well, it's, it's an intense love for God. It's a passion. It's a prayer. And it's an intellect. It's something you think about. The greatest way to illustrate this is through a scene of a movie that I saw with my father and my brother. It came out many years ago. I had read the book, River Runs Through It. It's a semi-autobiographical story of Norman McLean and his family in Montana, and they were fly fishermen. His father was a Presbyterian minister, and he and his brother were a couple of numbskulls, and uh, yet they had a deep respect for their father, and they struggled with his rules and regulations and and yet one of the things that really connected them as a family was fly fishing on the mon, uh, out in the mont the back the blackfoot and other rivers and so you would see them often out there and it's a beautiful movie and i when it came out i said dad and i told my brother dave we got to meet up and i was living in thousand oaks at the time and they were down here and so we said i said let's come let's go to westwood and see this movie because this is really the story of our lives 30 Five plus years ago, we built a log home uh, in the uh, near the Jackson Hole, Wyoming area in Idaho, and by the Teton and the Snake River. And my father, and my brother, and I spent many, many years fly fishing together. And so it just brought a lot of emotion. There's a scene, and it's the last scene of the movie, and I just started bawling. It just really got to me, because Norman McLean is now an old man. His father's died. His brother is gone. He's all alone. I don't know about you, but the older you get, the one thing you do fear is loneliness. Aloneness. Wondering whether anybody will take ever take care of you or whether you will have anybody with you. It's, it's a fear. It's, it's something you deal with. And in that moment, I just sense this man alone. And these are the words he said. Now all those I loved and did not understand in my youth are gone. But I still reach out to them. They are all gone. But the desire remains. The desire to be connected to something I love dearly. 
And I think what Norman McLean is saying is he's out there fly fishing, remembering of the days of being in connection with his father and his brother. It's really the great commandment to love God, to love people. There's a deep desire within all of our hearts to truly want this above all other things. And that powerful scene of a father's connection with his boys and boys' connection with one another illustrates the desire that lives within every one of our hearts. And yet so often what happens is it gets pushed out or lost. So Jesus says to the Pharisees who knew the greatest commandment, why would you ask a question if you already know the answer? Think about it. Why? They already knew the answer. They thought they were going to try to trick Jesus. It really shows how confused they were in their own religion. And Jesus clarifies with their own texts, well, here's how you do it. It takes passion. First of all, it takes passion. Well, what's passion? Passion is what drives your life. We all have passion. We've got great passion. I want to say several things about passion. It comes from the word cardia, heart. Now, in the Old Testament, the heart and the mind are connected, but Jesus separates them here in the great commandment. And the heart and mind are separated because the heart is the command central for your entire life. You'll never be committed to whatever controls your life unless you are passionately in love with it. And so, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked. But Ezekiel reminds us in 36 that God has given us a new heart. So the heart's been restored in Christ. God came to give you a new heart because the heart led you away from God. Now you have a heart that's reconnected with God. And that's why David cries out in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and do not take the Holy Spirit from me. You take that, you take my life. I mean, when's the last time you thought of your heart as your life? So it's passion. I want to say several things about passion. First of all, there's a real lost passion today. John Eldridge points this out. He writes a lot of great books on this and says that basically what religion has done to Jesus is a self-reliance on a command base. Do this and you'll get that. You earn, deserve, and it strips away the core of our faith. The deep longing in our hearts for something that stirs our innermost being, really stirs it. We've lost it. But I also want to talk about something else, and it's the enemy that wants to steal your passion. And it reminds me of the wicked uh, witch in uh, The Wizard of Oz. And if you read I. Frank Baum's book, The, Wizard of the, the Wizard, Wonderful Wizard of Oz, it actually has the, the conversation of the Tin Man. And what he was thinking, and you know the story that he became, he became tin, but you really don't know why he lost his heart. Well, the wicked witch was jealous of his love that he had for a munchkin girl. And he wanted to marry her. And he was madly in love with this beautiful maiden. 
And the witch hated his love and slowly turned his body into metal and finally removed his heart. And the tin man says, I lost all my love for the munchkin girl and did not care whether I married or not. The greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth. But no one can love who has not a heart. And so true that is. You may have lost your heart. Your heart may have been stolen from you, crushed. Maybe something's happened in your life where your heart has been hardened or you're hardened against God. Why did this happen? Or maybe you've just become apathetic or other things have taken away your passion. There's lots of reasons. What Jesus is trying to do is restore, first of all, your passion for God. That's what he's doing. He's trying to stir us up. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Eldritch goes on and talks about why we're to live from the heart. Because the heart lives in the far more bloody and magnificent realities of living and dying and loving and hating. The real stuff happens in the heart. I mean, it's bloody, it's hard, and it's magnificent. It's the hardest part about life. And yet, it's why only those that have renewed their passion and romance, uh, uh, Frederick Beekner, Freddie Beekner, I love some of his writings, and he calls the heart the shimmering self. It's, it's the shimmering self. It's where the passions and dreams and fears and deepest wounds live. That's why if you just simply live out of your head or live out of your emotions, you, you really will be detached from life. I want to also talk about the misguided heart because there's great passion in a lot of us. One of the most passionate people I ever knew was my father. He was passionate about life. Grew up in poverty in Gardena. Um, there, were, uh, there were no paved streets, small little houses, dirt streets. He sold bread to help afford the rent for the house with his family. My grandfather was a school teacher and then also a carpenter in the summer when all four of the children were sent off to farms in Nebraska. My family came from Nebraska. And, uh, and yet, he decided that's not the way he was going to live his life. Went through high school. And then he got into the Navy, went through officer training, college, and dental school, and went on with his life. But the greatest passion of my father was to live for adventure. And I will still remember the scenes in my mind of being behind my dad on a glacier in Canada, helicopter skiing, and he's out way ahead. Like, he doesn't care whether I make it or not. He's going down. That's passion. Son, you're on your own. I remember we showed up. You know, you're handing out radios and shovels, and we're getting trained on how to dig someone out of an avalanche. And I turned to him, you didn't tell me about this part. He goes, don't tell your mother. And it was, yahoo! Well, I could, yahoo! It was, I could hear it. Whether it was his race boat going to Catalina or water skiing or snow skiing or fly fishing, 
or windsurfing or whatever else he did in life, there was great passion and he lived with that passion and he gave me that kind of passion for life. Life is to be lived with passion, but later in his life he realized there's a greater passion. It's a passion for God and it changed his relationships with God and changed his relationships with us, with everybody. I saw total change in his life. Amazing. So how do you love God with passion? A couple thoughts. The first one is, you need somebody contending for you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I am contending. Argon, the struggle of an athlete. I am struggling like an athlete for you on your behalf. That, that your hearts will be wrapped in the comfort of heaven and woven together in love's fabric. This will give you access to all the riches of God as you experience the revelation of God's great mystery in Christ. A heart fully alive, fully passionate, enthralled with the understanding and experience of God's love. And I have people in my life that are contending for me. Do you have anybody contending? J.P. Jones in Orange County, a pastor, I know he intercedes on my behalf. I know he's praying for me. My passion is still alive because of him. David Jennings in Wyoming is a dear friend that I know he contends for me. He's cantankerous, but he also contends. And I love him for that and for both. And he's got my back. And he's praying. Do you have anybody in your life contending for you? Because you can't do it alone. Are you contending for anybody's passion for God? That's number one. Number two, I wrote focus time. I need exercise. My cardiologist has told me that. When I checked out of cardio rehab after three months, where are you going to be working out? What's your plan? I mean, it wasn't like, hey, go have a good life. You're all, you're all well. It was, you just almost died so here's what you will do the rest of your life. Literally, they sat me down. It was an exit interview, and it was a commitment to six days a week because my heart needs exercise. My body needs it in order to get back to where I was before. I was communicated that way. Well, so does your spiritual heart. And so when I walk, it's for another purpose It's for walking for my heart's sake, but it's also walking for my heart's sake. Because those are the times I connect with God. It's focus time. And I feel, I don't use the word love. You can say I love God, but it just doesn't work for me. I mean, I love my wife. I love my children. I love, you know, a good grilled fish taco. But there's a lot of things I love. But when it comes to God, I don't know, Lord, I love you. I do love him. But what I really am is passionate about him. That's a better word for me. It just works for me. I'm passionate about you, God. You affirm me. You you give me confidence. You believe in me. You, You fill me up, Lord. And those walks are the times I feel most passionate with God. Third, Idea. Louis Schmid says this, making a commitment to love one another. We surrender our freedom. We surrender our individuality. That's why it's hard to fully love God. It's costly. you got to surrender something. 
So I wrote three questions. What are you holding on to that's stealing your joy? Something's in the way. C.S. Lewis in Four Loves was talking, talks about this. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. And if you, if you don't want to love, then keep it intact. Give it to no one. Wrap it around things and activities. That's what you, there's your game plan if you really don't want to love. So go do that. Go off and do that. But he says, your heart won't become broken. It will become unbreakable. Play on words. Irredeemable. Your heart becomes irredeemable if you don't give it away. Give yourself passionately in the love of God. Where is the safest place from the dangers of love? Lewis writes, hell. This is the safest place you can be. I wrote a second question. What do you get really fired up about? You know what I get fired up about. What fills your tank? What really fills your tank? Where are you spending focused time? Number two, we love God with all of our souls. That's the second thing that Jesus says here. And uh, it's, it's, it's soul, but, but really it's about prayer because the soul, the expression of the soul is communication. That's how we get prayer out of it. The, the, your soul is your being. God makes you a living soul. And what did he do with you? Put you in the garden. And what did you do in the garden? Well, you commune with God. And when the evil one came in and, and sin happened, what happened? They lost that intimacy, that communion. The presence of God was lost. That's what was lost. And so they were separated and What Jesus brings, he's the mediator to bring us back into communion with God. It's what we're going to do in a minute. Have communion with Jesus. And the communion is through prayer. The the key way to have a fully committed heart is one that is in relationship with God, that communes with God. And I, I can think of no better way than what Romans 8, 15 says. Paul tells the church, the way in which you commune to God is through one word, Abba. All you need to do is know one word to learn how to pray, Abba. It's, it's, it's the word that children would use to express their love of dad, daddy, mama. I love our little grandson, August. He hasn't got to the third word, which is pops, but he's working on it. He's working on it. But when I see him, the two hands go up, and, I, and a word comes out of his mouth, I sense what's going on there. There is no greater pleasure in life than a little one-year-old, your grandson, your son, reaching his or her arms out to you, crying, Abba. I mean, that's what God wants. So why aren't we doing that? Jesus says, if you really want to love God, cry out Abba with all the passion that you have. Daddy, security, love, attention. You will take care of me. No one else will like you do. That's what God's saying prayer is about. That's the essence of prayer is communicating to God, I know you will be my daddy. I know it. And I'm going to cry out to you. Keller points out that it's, 
It's so much more. It's a primordial desire of every human being to reach out to the one who can love us perfectly. It's a primordial cry of every human being when they are born to cry out. And Paul taps into this and says, this is the way we talk to God. The soul is the whole of who you are as a living being. God has made you as a communicative being. You can talk to God. Matthew 21, if you have faith and don't doubt, not only can you do what was done for the fig tree, but also you can say to the mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. All things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Jesus says it. I mean, James says it this way. You don't have because you don't ask. The reason why you don't have what you're really desiring is because you haven't even asked God of it. Batterson says, in Circle Maker, you become what you pray. You are becoming your prayer life. So what's your prayer life look like? I want to encourage you in this. I want you to join with us to begin. There's a group in our church that has just started a 40-day prayer study And it's Rick Warren's 40 Days of Prayer. All the talks are online, YouTube. You can buy the book at pastors.com. And you can do it yourself if you want. Or you can just simply pray along with us. And I I created a little kind of a, what are we going to pray about? What are we going to do? Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. If we have that slide, I'd love to see it. It's, um, I think I made a slide of it. It's in your notes as well. Something you can cut out. You can put a reminder in your phone. At 10.34 a.m. every morning, we've encouraged the staff, and we want you to join with us. Just pray. Why 10.34 a.m.? Well, Bill came up with it. It's very complicated, but here it is. Matthew 22, in the, uh, if you're using a 24-hour uh, clock, what, what time is 2200? 10. But it's 10 p.m., right? not 10 a.m. So we just simply transferred it from 10 a.m., 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. It's Matthew 22:34. It's the address of the passage, love God with all your prayer. But it's an a.m. So it's 10:34 a.m., which is Matthew 22:34. We're going to pray for two things. Just join with us. It's not complicated. Pray for your the growth of the love of God in your heart would continue growing through the next eight weeks, that God's love will get deep into you and it will just grow. But second of all, pray for the church. We've been talking about this. A lot of things are hinging on this one thing, but we have a lot of new goals, discipleship, and we want to apprentice new leaders, and, and we want to see, you know, gather, church Sunday morning gatherings all over the community pop up. But we also need a central hub. We need a place where kind of our command central, where staff and, and we can connect. It's a, it's a modern-day well where the river church and the community can connect, where we can do ministry. Lots of things are going to happen here. But pray for us. Let's pray for that. Let's pray God allows us to do that. Let's pray for that location. Pray for the financing. Pray for all the, whole, the city to approve all of these things so that we have a place we can go that's part of the river for the river to be in the community for ministry and outreach. So would you do that? But third of all, and finally, 
Jesus says, you need to learn how to love God with all your intellect, your mind. It is so important. Our minds, according to Dallas Willard, they they bring the reality of God into our, our lives. The reality of God in your life. God is real on the basis of what you think about. Did you know that? That the realness experience of God is connected to what you actually think, what goes into your head, what you focus on. Greater reality, more experiences, it's because it's based on the fact that your mind has been handed over to God. That's the way you love him. You love him by how you transform this thing, your head, your mind, what you think about. And guess what? The evil one, his job is to distort your thinking. That's what he wants to do. What God says is true, he wants to say is false. What he wants to do is put in false ideas in your head, and God wants to put true things that you can live on, you can rely on, you can trust him. You know they're true. And I could talk to you about relationships and marriage and parenting and health issues and work-related issues and experiences where the reality of God was so real in those because I didn't listen to the distortion and the lies. I listened to the truth that God was going to provide. God is a way. God knows what he's doing. All things work together for good. I know those are true. And the more I think of those things, the greater the reality of God in my life through those experiences. You can ask me, and I can look around and say, I know I can ask you about things. I know you know things about God because you've experienced them, and they align with truth. So are you growing your mind? So important. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 4 and 5, it says that our, our, our fight is not this invisible war in the heavenlies with this power and all of that. It's up there. But you know where the real fight is? The lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. It's the lofty thought. It's the false thinking that comes into our head. It's the junk food that our brains are living on as opposed to good brain food. And we know what brain food is. It's God's word. It's the truth of God's word. It's it's the truth of other people that have read and written on the truth of God. That's why I read widely. That's why I read a lot of the old guys. The new guys are good. They're not as good as the old guys. I'll just say that. The old guys are a lot smarter and a lot better. They are brilliant. And you read some of these old guys in the first 1,500 years of church history. They're brilliant thinkers. They figured things out. So I wrote down how. Well, I wrote down three things. TLC. Your brain needs a little TLC. It needs to think, it needs to learn, and it needs to be corrected. There you go. Think. We get lazy. Um, Os Guinness wrote a great book, and uh, it was entitled Fat Minds and Fit Bodies. I like the title because you know exactly what he's saying. We have put all of our focus on our bodies and not our minds. J.P. Moreland, love God with all your mind. Uh, he says we are living in an, area of, an era of anti-intellectualism. 
And that God says, even in Isaiah chapter 1, come, reason, let's reason together. Rational. Let's be rational. God says to the people, let's reason together. Let's think about, are you thinking? Are you reading? Are you growing your mind? Are you filtering out the junk? It is so important because the reality of God is determined on the basis of that, and it's a way in which we love God. Let me end with this. I I came to this understanding when I was at Berkeley, and I was a political science major, and I remember over and over again, I was struggling in my economic and political science classes, and, uh, and they said, well, you pro- have you read any of Karl Marx? And I said, no, who's he? And so, uh, you know, I got to read a little Karl Marx and learn about his ideologies, you know, socialism and communism and, and uh, equalizing power and, 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 and wealth and all of that. And it was just a bunch of great ideas, and Karl Marx was a great thinker, and that was all about it was, was. He was just a good thinker until Vladimir Lenin came along and became a student of Karl Marx and adopted his ideologies and all of his truths, and all of a sudden what happened, out of that came a charismatic leader for the world. And it changed a lot of the part of the world and the way it thinks about government and economics and wealth and society inequality and inequality. And, and Karl Marx was a thinker. Lenin was the doer. And I think what God is saying, if you really want to love me, are you thinking? Are you studying? Are you into God's word? Are you learning? Because that's the person I want to put in motion to really love me by going out and living that kind of a life. Let me close with not a prayer, but a poem. I like this guy. Um, uh, 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 what was, what's his first name? Rene. Rene? Is it Rene? Uh, Maria Rilke. Rainer. Rainer Maria Rida. There you go. German. Actually from Austro-Hungary, right? Born in Prague. And uh, German. And just pours out his heart to God in these amazing... Um, prayers, and this was tr- these were translated from German over a very, very long time by these two individuals that studied them and wanted the preciseness of the German translated into English by Rilke, um, whose middle name is Maria, but he was, he's a man. Okay, he didn't like that either. Um, but here's, here's a powerful, powerful poem, and just close your eyes and think of this, and you can play the music, you can do whatever, but this is intense. God is speaking to you right now, and he's saying, and this is the poem, I am, you anxious one. I am, you anxious one. Don't you sense me, ready to break into being at your touch? My murmurings surround you like a shadowy wings. Can't you see me standing before you, cloaked in stillness? Hasn't my longing ripped, ripened, in you from the beginning as fruit ripens on a branch. I am the dream you are dreaming. When you want to awaken, I am that wanting. I grow strong in the beauty you behold. And when the silence of stars, I enfold your cities made by time. I am. I am, you anxious one. I am. This morning, we're going to go have communion with the Lord with Jesus.
So bring your anxiety, bring your issues, bring what's stealing your joy, whatever it is. Bring it to the table. Jesus died for that. You're going to meet Jesus in communion. And he says, I've come and all is forgiven. Come, all is forgiven. The bread and the wine represent that all is forgiven. You begin a new life. Come to me and eat of me, John 6. Eat of my flesh. Drink of my blood. That's how intimate Jesus wants to be with us this morning.